Hello, and welcome to the Digital Health Leaders Podcast, where we bring the best of the best in digital health leadership to you. I'm Russ Branzell, President and CEO of the College of Healthcare Information Management Executives, or CHIME, and the host of this podcast. These are truly unprecedented times for our industry and our healthcare leaders. These leaders are doing everything they can to support our frontline caregivers and guide their organizations through some of the most tumultuous times in modern history. Today, we have one of those special leaders with us. Well, what an amazing pleasure uh, to have this guest with us today on our program. Uh, you can easily say he is the godfather of the role of the CIO. He is without a doubt the founder of CIO along with some friends of his during the time he was the first board chair, uh, CIO for major health system, CEO, a part of one of the major EMR companies in the United States. He's currently a HIT professor, an author, a university professor. Um, he just is uh, really one of the top minds of healthcare digital transformation across the world now. And uh, truly the ultimate along the years, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, and probably maybe even the only 4.0 uh, HIT leader will ever meet in our lifetime. So it was with an extreme pleasure to have Dr. John Glasser in our program today. Welcome to the program, John. Thanks, Russ. It was always a great pleasure to spend some time with you. So, uh, you know, things have gotten a little calmer on the East Coast. So how are you and the family doing during this period of time? Well, Russ, we're doing fine. I mean, we're holed up in our house in Acton, Massachusetts. Um, we have three grown daughters. One is a physician down in Pennsylvania and doing all that she can along with her colleagues to help deal with the influx of people who are sick. Um, the middle kid actually caught COVID. Uh, and we have this text message from her one Monday that I can't taste and I can't smell. Uh, she had some fairly mild symptoms and was better within a week. But nonetheless, it sort of came home, uh, came closer to home uh, than normal. And the youngest, uh, whose daycare evaporated, uh, she comes by, spends her day on the phone here while my wife and I, between calls with quality folks like yourself, take care of an 18-month-old grandkid. But overall, we're doing fine. I won't mind when this is over, uh, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll seem to get through in the next couple of months without much hassle. Well, for all the John Glasser fans out in the world, maybe we'll find a picture of Grandpa John taking care of the <laughs> grandchild there and uh, put, put that out in the archives. How about that? There you go. There you go. Well, like most grandpas, I can be reduced to uh, a six-year-old in a very short period of time in terms of silly games and songs and playing with babies and all that stuff. Well, that's probably what made you a great CIO, too. So uh, <laughs> there you go. Well, on that note, uh, like so many others in, in HIT, they, they talk about, oh, I'm going to back off and retire. And uh, you did just that from Cerner last year. And boy, you are one of the busiest retirees I've ever met. I'm, I'm pretty sure no one knows how to retire as, as a healthcare leader. They just keep getting busier and busier in different things. So, you know, first and foremost, what's keeping you busy these days and uh, keeping you focused yeah. on the industry? Well, Russell, I mean, perhaps like some folks, you know, I never really developed this set of uh, outside interests like golfing or sailing or woodworking or whatever, such that when I retired, I filled my days with that. Uh, and I really like the field. Uh, and I enjoy the people like you and our Chime colleagues uh, who met over the years. And like a number of folks who retire from this field because of the great interest in IT and healthcare, they're in demand for a variety of roles here. So I, in a way, I stink at retirement, uh, although I you know, no longer have a steady paycheck and more control over my time. I'm still very busy professionally. And really, the, 
you know, the, the activities fall into three buckets. One is teaching. And so I teach a course in eHealth at Wharton uh, to the MBAs. Uh, I did my 10th session or 10th year of that uh, this spring. Just started teaching executive education at the Harvard Medical School on digital transformation and, you know, uh, helping people understand what that looks like and how to go about it, et cetera. I still do some writing, uh, you know, in uh, probably five or six pieces a year. Plus, I think you may know this, Russ, I write a letter to my family every week and have done that for 35 years. So I continue to do that. I just like writing. Writing's a lot of fun. Um, and then do some board work. And that includes sitting on the board of some startup companies, a couple founded by former students of mine, uh, also the board of the American Telemedicine Association, the NCQA, the Health Initiative Scottsdale, and help a couple of private equity firms sort of look at opportunities there. So, um, and between all that, uh, there's time with a grandkid or um, heading down to Cape Cod. So it's, it's busy times uh, and still trying to get used to this uh, sort of, quote, retirement uh, six months into it, although I'm having a good time so far. Wow. It, it, at least you don't have the daily day pressures and stresses that you had before there. Now you get to choose where your stresses are. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, I think, Russ, for different people have different objectives in retirement. For me, it was not so much to, you know, exit the field. It was more to, it was to have more control over time and more flexibility in what you did. You didn't have to be in Kansas City or Melbourne, Pennsylvania on a regular basis. Um, and, you know, while being a leader and a manager is fun, uh, you didn't have to deal with some of the stuff that comes with that. Well, one of the things that, that I find so interesting in this career field, this, this industry we work in, it doesn't matter where I go, that, that you have you've absolutely had impact on so many out there, whether it be through formal programs, but also the people that you've worked with. There are so many CIOs out there that either worked for you or you mentored. Uh, I count myself one of those extremely fortunate people who, who benefited from your mentorship for years and years. Matter of fact, even to this day, I'm sure I still need a little bit of shaping and molding from you. <laughs> I don't want to bring it up, Russ, but you're right. Yeah. We got a, we got a yeah. remedial program for you. We'll do that one on the offline. Um, yeah, but, that's but fine. Why, that's just fine. Why, why was this such a personal passion for you to, to be so focused on career development and people development? Well, Russ, I don't know. I mean, I think a couple things, you know, come together. One is, you know, like you and, and other folks, you know, um, Bill Spooner, for example, in industry, I spent a lot of time uh, in industry associations and industry forums. So whether it's Chime or HIMSS or eHealth Initiative or whatever. So you wind up meeting a lot of people. And that's one of the great parts of it. You just meet a lot of people. I really neat people from, you know, different parts of the country, uh, different roles, et cetera. So anyway, there's a lot of people. Um, and the vast majority of them I genuinely like. I mean, enjoy their company. And sometimes it's really brief. You know, it's a reception at a time form, et cetera, and you get 10 minutes, et cetera. But I enjoy all that. And so if you have a lot of people who you genuinely like, you know, all of us uh, wind up with situations where we say, golly, should I change this job or not? Or should I go for the promotion or not? Or should we do this or should we do that? What do you think? And I'm always happy to answer those types of questions, um, partly because I like the people and want to help, uh, partly because, like you, uh, there have been people over my life who've been enormously important to me in terms of shaping me one way or the other. So it's sort of, you know, giving back. Uh, in a way. So I, I enjoy that it comes naturally. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of, you know, what goes with that is you, you listen, you know, you listen to them talk, you say, well, have you thought about, and you ask some reasonably astute questions. You don't tell them the answer. They'll tell themselves the answer. Um, it just helps to sort of have some talk to somebody and help you talk the way through it. But I, you know, the result is some really good friends, yourself included, uh, and a lot of pride, you know, that help folks along the way, you know, take this step or that step, knowing that they really did the work 
I didn't. Uh, but anyway, so anyway, Russ, I think it's, it's one of the great pleasures, frankly, of, uh, of the role that you and I have. And, you know, you teach at Columbia. I teach at Warden. And it's one of the great pleasures of helping those students, you know, grow into the professionals that they will be. So did you have like a structured approach to helping people out or was it literally just let's meet on a weekly basis mentor or were you uh, I'm going to get them from A to B and I know I can get them there yeah. or, or really was it more of an informal let's just kind of just work this out like play. Well it varies Russ so sometimes it is you know you get a call from a colleague you know I had one earlier this week that says hey I'm thinking of changing jobs I've got two options what do you think you know sort of give me your reaction to the two options here and you know that's out of the blue I hadn't talked to him in a while and I may not talk to him in a while again so you get these sort of out of the blue you know life events etc sometimes it's with people you work with so for example it can be a person who's your lieutenant you know when you're the CIO sometimes when I was you know, board chair was you know board chair of China as you mentioned, but also Hims Knee Health Initiative. It's taking the the CEO off to the side and say, uh, hey, let's talk about this out of the other. And where you have sort of regular interaction with somebody, uh, and you're in a position to observe them, um, and particularly if if they're sort of helping, they're beginning to grow. You have the opportunity to take them off to the side and say, we got to talk about this because I might have done it a little differently. Or why don't you tell me what you thought of that event? And it, you know, for example, sometimes. In a board situation, things will leave the tracks uh, and head down the gully. And you say, why do you think that happened? Uh, and first of all, how do we get out of here? But then let's talk about what we did or you did that we could make it better. So anyway, between the you know idiosyncratic you know, ad hoc reach outs, there are times when you have regular interactions with people, you can see them in action. Uh, and you're in a position to get feedback and you give the feedback sort of on the moment. We say, I think it's needed now. Not necessarily every week. It's really, you know, while it's fresh in everybody's mind. Wow. That's a great approach. Well, you are, and you mentioned it earlier, um, you are a prolific writer. Um, just what you write for your family, for others, uh, you know, especially on the subject of HIT. So, so what's your current writing stuff? And, you know, even, even down to telling us why you write a, you know, the weekly letter to your family, but, you know, it, it, even in our field, what are you writing these days? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, Russ, I really like writing. And I think if if you're if you're going to you know commit yourself to writing a lot, you better like it. Otherwise, you'll find 101 reasons not to. You know, too tired. I got this to do it. I just really enjoy the, you know, the the sort of pleasure of putting ideas on a paper and looking back. Boy, oh boy, that's really a well phrased paragraph or sentence. As odd as that is, it's almost sort of my own form of creativity. Uh, but anyway, I mean, I, I put an article out a couple weeks ago on what I thought would be the sort of natural evolution of the electronic health record, and that showed up in Harvard Business Review. Um, and it was about, you know, how we're going to shift to you know, these more intelligent plans would be the form or the basis for the electronic health record. And, um, and I got a lot of really positive reaction about that. So I wrote about that. And I've been thinking about that over the years and decided just to put pen to paper. I'm working on two things now, one of which I spent some time writing this morning which is, you know, when we, we talk about digital transformation in healthcare, and the question is, you know, you could argue that we haven't done that yet. I mean, IT's done some good things, but in terms of transform, well, maybe we haven't done that. Not like retail has done that or financial services. So if we're about ready to embark on that journey, what can we learn from retail or financial services? Or frankly, you know, agriculture has done some extraordinary work. So anyway, I'm writing about that. You know, what can you learn from that? 
Um, and examples is that, you know, actually in some ways, digital transformation is the wrong phrase. The right phrase is transformation enabled by digital technology. So it's the transformation that matters. The digital helps you, you know, do that. So anyway, I'm writing about that. I'm probably two thirds of the way through that this morning. The second one that I'm is uh, sort of sketching at this point. As if you look at the progress of interoperability in this country, and you say that the degree to which it happens or doesn't happen is driven by the business case that surrounds it. So it will happen when the participants find a business case for doing so, uh, you know, submitting a claim electronically. It won't happen when there's not really a good business case. So you say, well, what's the business case now? Well, partly it's moving to value-based care. You know, that'll sort of require that we integrate, uh, you know, across the continuum. Uh, you know, partly it's the regulations are a business case. You better do this because it's, you know, an ONC or CMS regulation. And so the question is, well, will the COVID situation pandemic change the interoperability of the agenda? And I think, yes. Uh, and the question is, well, how? Well, there likely to be more public health uh, interoperability. We now have to factor in telehealth the way we didn't before. Uh, sooner or later, Russ, we're going to get a vaccine. So we're going to have to have interoperability of immunization registries. You know, a lot of health systems are in distress or providers are in distress. They'll probably accelerate the development of larger and larger health systems. And so intero interoperability will increase. But anyway, we'll do the second one will be on, you know, how COVID has changed or is likely to change uh, interoperability. And then last but not least is the, uh, with two colleagues from the Medical University South Carolina. I've written a textbook on healthcare IT. It was really used extensively in uh, uh, health administration programs. Anyway, we uh, will probably do the fifth edition of this textbook beginning in the fall. Uh, and that's a lot of work. I mean, that's six months worth of work. Um, and regarding writing letters to family, um, you know, there's, I, I like reaching out to my siblings, uh, to my wife's siblings, to my in-laws, and to various cousins and nieces who've accumulated over time. And you know, this letter, which this week's letter, which just went out, talked a little bit about the fact that I don't really read for pleasure anymore, not to fix that. So it's kind of way personal. Um, it also talked about the fact that, um, you know, there is a you know, increasing number of, uh, you know, of, of sort of organ or actually sort of how languages change. You know, so, for example, how did English change over time? And perhaps if you said, well, what languages have changed the most is probably the languages in Central America. Uh, as a result of the Spaniards and other colonists changed most. But anyway, I just was struck by it. It's also struck by the fact that the largest structure in the universe has been discovered, which is 10 billion light years long. You think about 10 billion light years. Holy smokes. That's unfathomable. But anyway, there's sort of this idiosyncratic random collection of stuff. Uh, that goes in there. So anyway, that's a long-winded response to a very good question of what I'm writing about and why I do the personal letters. Today's episode of the Digital Health Leaders Podcast was brought to you by our segment supporter, LK, your healthcare data plumbers. Learn more about LK at ellkay.com. Wow, that's amazing. Maybe we'll have you start writing a personal letter to all the CHIME members. How about that? that might be interesting. <laughs> okay, sure. I'll put you on the list here. There you go. <laughs> Ran random stuff from John that we'd all want to know. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. What a John catcher says to you this week. Yeah, and you can become our Cliff Clavin for uh, for, yeah. for all of time. Now, that'd be great. You know, some of the – you obviously are, to a lot of people, the the not just the mentor, but kind of the standard that they judge their careers by and and success there. And you've had a very long and successful career uh, even creating some of our industry along the way. Um, but, you know, having a long career can be tough. And so what are some of the yeah. lessons and, and how did you stay focused on what was most important for you? 
Well, I think there's a couple. I guess there's two things. One of which I what I have done and would encourage everyone to do, and particularly those who are entering middle age, for example, is you say, look, at some time I will have 30 seconds left in my life, you know, you know, and, and I want to be able to look back on it and say certain things. What is it that I want to be able to say about my life in total? Um, uh, and I came up with my list, which is five things, which is I want to say that I'm as madly in love with my wife then as I am now, uh, that my children will have had lives as blessed as mine, different, but they're, you know, but blessed nonetheless, um, that I've been spared crushing hatred and poverty and pain, et cetera. But if not spared, uh, then I deal with those with courage that I will, that the people I will have uh, worked with will say I inspired, taught them and led them well. And then last but not least is that the industry and the organizations that I serve were better because I was here. So I think one thing to do is whatever your five is or four or whatever, is you, first of all, you understand that. And the second is you ensure that day in and day out, although you don't have to do this every day, that you are, you are living and acting in a way that supports that goal because you will pass away and you might have the chance of looking back and you want to have a really good answer to the time that you had here. So I think, you know, and that'll play out in lots of ways and it's hard to balance all that stuff, et cetera. The second thing that I thought was, uh, um, you know, useful to do, encourage people to do this too, is if you say, all right, uh, you know, I've had, you know, various roles in my career, management and leadership. Um, what is it that I, what is it that, I, what has this taught me? What do I believe, uh, for example, what do I know as a result from that? So I'll give you an example. And this is actually a letter I wrote, uh, golly, about 15 years ago, uh, following a retirement event for Dick Nesson who at the time was the CEO of Partners, had been the CEO of the Brigham. And, you know, back to one of your earlier questions, he had an extraordinary influence on me. You know, he was my boss in my early 30s and shaped me a lot. And I wrote about, to, you know, so here's what Dick taught me, you know, as a long line. One is that, you know, patient care is the foundation of all that we do. The second is that if you can lead, you must lead, because if you don't, then who will? So leadership is, a, is an obligation to duty at a level. The third is that you take care of those who work for you. You know, you, you make sure they're okay. You help them in a way you love them, uh, just as you would a close family member. And, you know, you've got your boss. You've got to do certain things, but you take good care of them. The other is you take risk uh, because you can and you need to. And you make sure you're not stupid about the risk. But nonetheless, you take risk. I mean, at the end of the day, worst thing that happens is you get fired. You know, big deal. I mean, it is a big deal, but it's not that big of a deal. The other is you learn how to manage talent. You give them a long leash. You support them. And when, you know, crap hits the fan, you take it for them. You know, you learn how to be tough. And tough isn't growling and, you know, clobbering people or pounding on the table. It's about sticking with your convictions. There's knowing and being true to integrity. And I learned about, you know, he reminded me of the importance of family. And maybe most important of all, Russ, is that every time you say something, do something, or are present, or don't say something, don't do something, or absence, you are leading. So leading happens every second of the day that you are in front of those folks here. So the point of that is above and beyond the f five goals is whatever you are doing, whether you know, it's advancing the field or raising a family or helping your community or whatever it might be, is what is it that you believe and know? Uh, and do you stay true to that along with your five goals? And the other thing that Tommy Ryan is I, I wrote this up and I uh, sent it to my family, but also gave Dick a copy. And I left it on his, with his secretary and he came in the next day to my office and closed the door and said, you made my wife cry, um, which basically was his way of saying, you touched me deeply uh, in doing that. It's just kind of the way he was in this thing. And two months later, Russ, he died. Um, 
sudden heart attack. And I guess the lesson to us all in that, above and beyond, you know, what are the things you want to see as you, you know, finish up your time on this planet? Uh, and what are the things that you hold dear? Is if there is someone important to you who's been, you know, instrumental in whatever way, shape, or form that has been, you tell them that. Because you don't want to be on the time we said, I missed the opportunity to say what should have been said. So anyway, let's just, you know, take the time to, it's a little awkward at times. Uh, but nonetheless, I think I am glad I wrote that when I did. I'm sorry he passed away, but I'm glad he got to see that before he did. Wow. Yeah. I, I, one of the ways I heard that one time is never wait for the funeral to eulogize somebody. Yeah, exactly right, yeah. Russ. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, they, they, I will tell you, the, the, the line for, for honoring you would be so long right now, and I'm one of those that would fight for the front of the line. So that's yeah. great. Thank you for all you do. Now, let, let's talk about the role of CIO, because you were literally one of the first CIOs, if not the first CIO in the country, but if, if, you know, maybe one of the first um, in that role. And obviously, it's changed a lot over the years. I would even say it's changed over the last probably four months. But, you know, what do you think some of the challenge are, challenges are of today's CIO, health IT leaders, um, you know, the biggest challenges they've got right now? Well, I think the job's harder now than it was when I was doing it. It was hard then, but it's harder now. Um, and I think it's harder now for a couple of reasons, you know, one of which is you have a much more uh, IT savvy leadership team, you know, now because you've had people who've been through implementations who perhaps grew up in the technology. Um, and so they're, that's great at a level because they can be more supportive. It's a problem at a level because they're more demanding, you know, at a level. So I think, you know, there's a more demanding audience. The other thing that makes it harder is that, golly, you look around and you say, geez, you know, there's been digital transformation, like we talked about earlier, you know, banking and retail. How come we're not there? You know, quote, why is healthcare behind? What are you going to do about it, John or Russ, uh, to get us further along? So there's pressure uh, to go off and do this. And it, sometimes it comes from the board, people who are, you know, presidents of banks or, you know, titans of whatever uh, who often do that. So I think there is that. And along with the clinical staff, we're also more savvy. So a lot of expectations are higher. Uh, than they've ever been before. And, you know, it's also perhaps uh, exacerbated by the sort of really slick nature of a lot of the consumer technology, you know, Uber and, you know, of, uh, you know, playing music and all that other stuff. So I think that's hard. And at the same time, I think it's harder to protect the infrastructure from security threats. You know, now that the EHR has been broadly adopted, that's good. But on the other hand, there's usability issues that have cropped up and people think, geez, we really didn't optimize it. Like, we should. what was that all about? We a lot of money is really really hard and yet we don't feel like we're any better so i think getting yield is harder and protecting the base is hard so anyway just across the board it is uh, it is more challenging and then you know i think we throw in this sort of uh sort of plethora of chiefs so there's the cio there's the chief digital officer the chief health information officer the chief nursing informatics officer you know you go down the list and golly there's a dozen or so chiefs and it gets a little confusing at times about who's in charge you know, of all of this type of activity, et cetera. So I think it is a more demanding job than it was then. It's more promising in a way because you got a more receptive leadership. Uh, you got some technologies that are slicker, um, but it can be harder to pull the base together um, and to go off into, you know, sort of really do all the things everybody would like to do while, you know, maintaining and frankly, you know, we're in this COVID era where a lot of budgets have just taken it on the chin. So there's going to be less money uh, than there was before and doing up to a lot of things. But anyway, uh, I think that, that that's a challenge. Um, and I suspect that on top of all of that, 
um, the and as people slowly emerge, and it depends on kind of what part of the country you're in from the sort of COVID pandemic. I think the Northeast is probably emerging, but obviously parts of the Southwest and the Southeast are not emerging yet at all. They're in the throes of it. Um, and you say, we have to imagine and create a new normal, a post-COVID uh, era. What is that? So let's, you know, we have to work on the IT organizational agenda. And, you know, so what you know, sort of working with the organization to lift their head up from the current crisis and imagine the new world that is coming. And, you know, rest of you know pieces of it. There'll be more telehealth, remote, uh, more remote uh, work. Uh, organizations move faster, you know, during the crisis than they did before. Maybe the sort of streamlined governance will occur. The analytics showed lots of cracks and sort of insufficiencies, and maybe we'll get better than that. But anyway, you get what I, I think you get what I'm saying. There's a transformation induced by a crisis. What is it that we're going to become? So, you know, what is the big challenge is, is crafting that. Uh, in, in the face of a lingering crisis, uh, a fiscal distress that is non-trivial uh, and a fairly uncertain future. And then you throw on an election and a Congress that will be sort of get tossed up in the air in November. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to one of our colleagues and friends in the UK this afternoon and, uh, and, and they said, OK, Russ, uh, your world seems a little crazy right now. I said, well, we only have the second worst possibly pandemic in humankind, followed by <laughs> the economic challenges. In complete and so total societal discourse, oh, wrap around that, we're right around the corner from an election right now, which couldn't be any more um, polarizing in our nation right now. I said, but other than that, we're doing fine. Uh, no, I'm with you. It's a quadruple whammy. I mean, there's the pandemic, and, you know, it's, it's unbelievable, although, you know, frankly, it's not going to be as lethal as the Black Plague, but nonetheless, it's devastating. So we got that. We were in a bona fide recession, you know, with unemployment rates in the double digits, et cetera. And, you know, frankly, a lot of those jobs won't be coming back. Third, we're in a period of extraordinary racial unrest and injustice. Uh, and, you know, there's it's just it's been a, disparities is real and it's finally surfacing in a lot of anger. And then you're right. We got a sort of incredibly polarized population. Uh, and I think it's going to be really hard to unify this country. Uh, I think it's it's going to be tough. It will require all of us, not just a person we elect, uh, but require all of us. But anyway, that's a there's a lot happening here uh, and a lot to get through. And none of this will disappear in the next 30 days. You know, it'll be with us in this in the winter, in the fall and probably the spring. So so I have this nightmare that I have all the time. And it goes back to my military days that they call me back up to the military and I have to go back and do the jobs when I was a young lieutenant and captain as if I could still do any of those things again. So I'm going to give you your nightmare scenario. You know, we have all these CIOs retiring today, and they say somehow they figured it out. John Glasser, you're getting called back up drafted. You're going to be a CIO, CEO, whatever the case may be, one of those leaders back in a health institution, particularly a provider institution. Kind of how would you approach that job today? Because there are a lot of young leaders being forced into what I would call fairly senior positions. Well, I think, you know, I think the thing that would be fortunate for me, Russ, and fortunate for you, if that happened to you, is that there's a set of experiences which you can rest on a lot, uh, which is different. I mean, I recall when I first became a CEO at the Brigham, I was 32. And I thought, man, oh, man, I still had my umbilical cord attached, you know, <laughs> really, in, you know, lots of ways here. Uh, so, but, you know, and less green now and more seasoned and savvy. I think, you know, Russ, you know, the usual thing that one does is to really understand the organization and the players, its direction, its politics, its culture. So you spend a lot of time just learning about all this stuff before you really start opening your mouth and start committing to stuff, which you don't know yet whether you will or won't be able to deliver on this thing. I do think there's some general threads, you know, to go on. 
you know, one of which is, you know, is the existing base of technology in reasonable shape, you know, and never, stuff's never perfect, but, you know, the infrastructure is solid, the EHR is in place, by and large, reasonably well used. And so we don't have a fire going on here. You know, if there's an inferno somewhere, we got to fix that. You know, it's like an AR system that's on fire. You got a problem. Let's go deal with it. So anyway, let's just make sure that's in reasonable shape. Um, the second is there probably some very near-term stuff to deal with. I mean, you got to sort of near-term deal with telehealth, near-term deal with telework. Who knows what we'll decide to do as a country about the public health IT infrastructure. It's got to go on. I mean, Russ, a colleague was talking to uh, earlier today, said, you know, we're, uh, you know, we, you know, we, uh, we have to be prepared for the fact that there will be a vaccine and we're going to have to immunize an amazing number of people in a very short period of time. And it's highly likely the vaccine uh, won't be like one of those vaccines you got when you were five and they're still good you know, decades later. It may have like a two to three year life. So we have to have vaccine registries that are interoperable. Where are they? Holy smokes. I don't know. But we'll need to know that answer in, you know, uh, probably Thanksgiving, December timeframe. So anyway, there's some nearer term things to deal with. And it includes the fact is the revenue is taking a hit uh, and people are being furloughed and programs being canceled, et cetera. So let's ratchet down the IT organization to a level that's supportive of the overall organizational fiscal challenge, but also on the other hand, gives us some opportunity to do some work. So we optimize what we have, um, deal with, uh, you know, whatever cost reductions we need to make. And then I think, you know, once you make sure, okay, I got the, the current stuff covered as well as I can, it's not on fire. And the intermediate term stuff is reasonably well understood because people will be anxious about that because they know it's coming, if not here right now. And then let's take the time, as I sort of mentioned a couple of minutes ago, if, what does this new normal era look like? Now, you know, the whole world in 2022 won't be shaped entirely by post-COVID pandemic because value-based care is still here. Uh, you know, the sort of normal uh, advances of technology like AI, et cetera, they're still advancing COVID or otherwise. Um, so we still have, you know, a poor complex agenda to deal with. But, you know, engaging the leadership, you know, as, as you can in helping to craft the future, mindful that the IT future is supports another with a broader future. It's not just an IT future. It's an IT-enabled future uh, that we're going after. But anyway, that's kind of what I would do. And, you know, that's probably, you know, get you through the first week. Uh, and then the second week, you can just kick back and, you know, enjoy long lunches and early, early afternoons. Oh, that's great. So kind of a last thought, some some great wisdom from John, which you're always good for, some some thoughts that you just always wanted to share with the, with a broader audience, and you're great at doing that, but uh, kind of putting it on official record, some, some kind of final thoughts of philosophy and life. I know you shared some already, but kind of, kind of the things that have helped guide you. Yeah, I think, um, I think Russ, a number of which, you know, we talked about, you know, whether your goals in life or what have you learned from those who, who shaped you, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, I think a couple of just general observations. One is, I, I, and I applaud the CHIME members and the foundation members, et cetera. I applaud leading. You know, you have to lead. And I know that that's not always easy. And I know at times that means you take the time away from family, this, that, and the other. But golly, you know, we need leadership. We need leadership in this country. We need leadership in healthcare. And we need you all. Leadership's not a thing a person does. It's a thing we all do. And we all do it all the time. So I think, you know, mindful of your obligations uh, to your family and to your community and all that stuff, lead. Uh, and that's what matters. And, you know, it takes all kinds of shapes. It means, it means displaying courage at the job. Uh, it means learning. It means taking care of your people. It means all kinds of things. So anyway, I, I sort of remind us all of the need to lead uh, because of the criticality of that. The second is remind us all 
that, you know, at times we get excited about the technology and we should, but the technology at the end of the day is a tool to further something else. You know, it is something to be applied to improve care or reduce errors or, you know, streamline this or enable consumers to make better choices about their health and health care, et cetera. So always remember that it's a tool. And always remember that, you know, your job is to make sure we understand what are we going to use this tool for? What else has to happen in order for the tool to be effective to often do this? You know, it goes back to the sort of digital transformation is in a, sometimes for us, remember in the, over the years, we've talked about the killer app. I mean, there's no such thing as a killer app. What there is, is a killer business model enabled by an app. You know, uh, Uber is a killer business model enabled by some pretty damn slick technology. Uh, so let's just be remindful of it. It's a tool to further something else that goes on. The other point is, is that at times we get caught in this healthcare is behind the technology. And, you know, you might think, well, it's full of dunderheads, you know, that people who just aren't very smart or who don't really care and, you know, whatever, whatever. And this is not true at all. It's full of some incredibly smart people uh, and incredibly committed people. Healthcare is, quote, behind because it is a exceptionally complicated industry. You know, one of the things that I go through in this sort of digital transformation sort of piece of writing about is that uh, it's really hard to transform healthcare. So many stakeholders are involved, you know, if you want to change something, you got to deal with it. Clinical community, administrative community, the patients, the regulators, the payers, you know, all the way down the line. Uh, it's hard to do that. It's highly regulated industry. It's a social, you know, it's got a huge mission component, which makes the value proposition complicated. Without whining about it, to be the point is you are dealing with, we are dealing with this exceptionally difficult, challenging industry, and that's the way that it is. Um, and so, you know, you know, it, what we shouldn't ever do is sort of beat ourselves up because we're behind. I think what we should do is say, all right, it is what it is uh, in terms of complexity. How can we do as well as we can in moving it forward? And one of the things to remind ourselves is moving forward in the sort of transformation we all desire can take years. So you know, one thing I've thought of, Russ, is if you look last year uh, at what percent of the e-commerce revenue, the, the sort of retail revenue, was with the total U.S. retail revenue last year, what percent was done over e-commerce? And the answer is 12%. I said, what? You know, and he said, well, when was Amazon founded? And the answer is 1994. So he said, geez, in 25 years, you've gone from zero to 12%. That's it? So, well, that's not really fair uh, because if you're selling books or consumer electronics, you've just been devastated by this. On the other hand, convenience stores, not so much because people don't buy gas over the internet. They go to a, you know, a convenience store to do that. So the point is, it took 25 years to get to 12%. And so the impact was uneven, but parts have really been transformed. So let's settle. And it doesn't mean we dilly-dally on this, but let's settle in for the long haul. Transformations take long periods of time, decades often. There you go. So this transformation will be going on after you retire. I've already retired and our colleagues retire. And it may be going on after our, those who succeed us retire. So, you know, sort of passing on to all of us uh, above and beyond, know what you want out of your life, know what matters to you, uh, et cetera, um, is to also make sure that, you know, you understand the sort of the nature of the, of, the, of the work we have in front of us, that we're leveraging tools as well as we can. And we're engaged in a marathon, a legitimate marathon to make healthcare better. But, it, you know, uh, worthier causes are hard to imagine. Well, John, you are without a doubt uh, a superstar in our industry, a dear friend to so many, a mentor to so many. And on behalf of all of them, first and foremost, we want to say thank you for everything you do for us, uh, things you've done as well as you continue to do for us on a daily basis. Well, Russ, thanks. It's, uh, you know, you can't tell because you and I are just talking, but I'm blushing over here. Uh, and 
I look forward to whenever the uh, travel restrictions uh, lift and can see you and our collective colleagues at an upcoming China event. Well, thank you, John, again. Uh, and we wanted to thank you, our listeners, for joining us for this episode with such a great, great leader for us on this episode of the Digital Health Leaders Podcast. As always, you can uh, listen to this on our chimecentral.org forward slash media or Apple or Spotify for any of our programs. And if you can, please, please, please stay home, take care, be safe, wear your mask when you're out, and God bless. Today's segment of the Digital Health Leaders Podcast was brought to you by our supporter, LK.